Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. It's a radio program dedicated to raising awareness about issues concerning animals. This includes animal advocacy, activism, protection, conservation and, importantly, appreciation. The program is broadcast from the 3CR studios in Melbourne, Australia and streamed live via the 3CR website. Recent podcasts are available via both 3CR and Freedom of Species websites, with all podcasts being available via iTunes. Welcome to Freedom of Species. I'm Kate Gracie, and today I'm going to play part of the presentation given by Dr. Michael Claper at Melbourne's Astor Theatre last April. It was an event hosted by Animal Liberation Victoria. Now, Dr. Claper had challenged Dairy Australia to a public debate that evening to defend their marketing claim that milk is healthy. Lo and behold, Dairy Australia didn't show. So anyway, Dr. Claper is an acclaimed doctor, environmentalist and educator and also the author of two books on the vegan diet. He's advised NASA on vegan diets for astronauts and he currently works in Northern California. I had the great fortune of hearing him speak at the Astor Theatre gig and while his presentation went way longer than anticipated, it was utterly fascinating from beginning to end. Now the presentation included PowerPoint slides but that you can't see them now is definitely no biggie. Anyway, sit back and enjoy this first 45 minutes or so of Dr. Michael Claper's talk. He was introduced by Philip Wallen. To say that I am honoured to be here is a great understatement. To be in the presence of Philip, the people who arranged this evening, <clears throat> Patty Mark, who couldn't be here today <clears throat> due to personal injury, all the people from ALV care enough to put on this event. And all of you quiet heroes out there, and that word gets so overused these days, but you really are. Hero is someone who puts themselves out at some risk, even to their reputation. And you all do that by what you say, more importantly, by what you do. I feel at home here, though I've never been in this city, because I'm among family, because we are a family. You are the awakened ones. You're the ones who didn't turn away when the truth of meat production was presented to you. Most everybody walking out on the street outside, they know, maybe they don't, but somehow in their hearts, they know. But they turn away. They're still sleeping that sleep that we all slept. I grew up eating meat and dairy. Till you know, you don't know. But once you know, they say once you look behind the curtain, you can't pretend you don't know what's behind the curtain. And you all know what's behind the curtain. And you chose not to turn away. 
So it's me who is honored to be in your presence and to share what I can tonight um, about how it looks from this physician's eyes. I'll start by uh, wishing you all a very happy Earth Day, which is uh, approaching soon. And this holiday, which I remember the first Earth Day back in 1970. I was a medical student at the University of Illinois. And I've seen this celebrated in many ways, uh, but now it has taken on such an urgency, such a power because of what we all know and what Philip just described. One talks to you about eating as if the future mattered, as most people are eating as if the future didn't matter. When I grew up in the 1950s, I spent my first 16 summers on my uncle's dairy farm in northern Wisconsin. And what a beautiful place it was. The skies were clear, the waters ran pure. I spent my days walking through the forests. And the animals were everywhere. The deer, the, the hawks, the, the owls, the geese, the dogs, the cats and of course the farm animals who I knew by name. I came to love the natural world. I saw its truth. I saw its beauty. The waters always flew, flowed downhill. The thunderstorms that would roll in in the afternoon had such power, such, such beauty, such terrible beauty to them. They, they humbled me, but they excited me. And I felt the same life force that motivated everything around me flowing through my own body as well. I came to love the earth. I became an unapologetic, passionate environmentalist. I give to every environmental organization I can and support them every way that I can because she is indeed our mother and I grieve as you do for what is happening to her. This is the University of Illinois College of Medicine in Chicago. It may look like Harry Potter's Hogwarts to you, but I have great reverence for this building because in this building I learned the principles and acquired the powers that enabled me to be a doctor of medicine. And what happened in this building shaped me and schooled me and made me the physician that I am. But it was something that happened in another building, about four blocks to the south in Chicago. And that was Cook County Hospital, big bad old Cook County in Chicago, where the blacks and Hispanics and the poverty-stricken people of Chicago came to seek their medical care when they were sick, when they were injured. And because I wanted to know the truth and the most powerful aspects of medicine, as a fourth year medical student, when my colleagues were out drinking wine and looking after the beautiful stewardesses that would fly in from O'Hare, I spent my nights and uh, Saturday nights in the trauma unit at Cook County. And in the trauma unit, I saw the truth of violence. I saw what violence does to people. I saw the shotgun blast, the knife wounds, the 38 caliber Saturday night specials. 
saw the emotional violence, the sexual violence, and the blood and guts consequences of what humans can do to each other. And it shook me. It shook me to my core. I graduated medical school. I walked across that stage. They handed me my diploma and called me doctor for the first time. But inside, I was still quivering. I had to come to terms with what I saw in that trauma unit. And the first place I had to look to deal with violence around me was inside myself. And for years, I studied about how to become a man of peace. I moved to Vancouver, did my internship at Vancouver General Hospital, and after five years general practice, I went back uh, to take training to become an anesthesiologist. But still, the violence that I saw at Cook County and that I was seeing in the operating rooms at Vancouver General, it shook me. And no matter how beautiful and powerful medicine is, it didn't help me understand the, the violence that I was seeing around me and within me. So, I did everything I could to learn how to become a true man of peace. And I read the works of Mahatma Gandhi and the Indian saints, and I began to understand what ahimsa really is. And I started feeling that I had an island of safety, of purity, as I tried to expunge thoughts and words and deeds of violence from my life, from my being. One evening, I was out dining with a friend of mine, a dear friend, a wise friend, and I told him my desires and my sincere efforts to become a man of true peace, of, of inner serenity, and become a beacon of peace for others. However, I was pontificating about becoming a man of nonviolence while I was polishing off a 16-ounce porterhouse steak at the local Kagan Cleaver. And he looked at me with great compassion and said, that's all very nice, Michael. Lovely words, but if you want to really become a, a man of peace and get the violence out of, my, out of your life, you might start with that piece of meat on your plate because in fulfilling your desire for the taste of that flesh in your mouth, you are paying for the death of the animal and for the next animal in the slaughterhouse line. And as soon as he said that, I stiffened and all the rationales that you have all heard so often came to the fore of my mind. Well, the animal's dead anyway, and that's what they raised them for, and all that, I was about to come out of my mouth and say that. But just before those words could pass my lips, a little voice on my shoulder whispered in my ear and said, you know, he's right. He's right. He's right. I could not finish that steak. I could not eat the flesh of an animal after that. I would walk 
down the streets in Vancouver and I would walk past the barbecue places and the smell of the barbecued meat would come out and, and the, those old reflexes were still there. Mmm, that smells good and mouth would water. And then I thought of a poster that I had seen on the wall of a friend of mine, Alex Hershaft, who runs the farm animal reform movement of a, of a little veal calf chained in a pen. And the neck is, is chained by this heavy chain and he's down in the veal crate and he's lying in his own feces and he's looking back at you with those big calf eyes and, he, and the caption is, and that's what the calf is saying, are you really that hungry? that you would pay for this cruelty. And at that point, I knew there was no going back. The animals are always looking. And if I'm to be a man of peace, and more importantly, be a man of integrity, I could not say that I didn't know. I could not say that it would be okay. The animals weren't looking, because I know they always are. Well, it didn't take long, <coughs> excuse me, for me to look down at my leather shoes and my leather belt and my leather wallet. Uh, I had been raised in a Jewish household, and the stories of the Nazi Holocaust refreshed in my ears, and I saw pictures of the lampshades made out of the skin of Jews. And I looked down at my shoes made of the skin of these innocent animals, and I was wearing their skin around my waist and in my wallet, and it felt absolutely ghoulish. I could not touch them, wouldn't put them on. So I took a shovel and I went to the backyard and I dug a hole. And into that hole, in went my shoes and my wallet and my belt. And I buried my leather. And I filled in the hole, and I stepped back. And I apologized to the animals, because I didn't know when I had bought those shoes and the belt and the leather. But I knew now. And I apologized to them, and I knew, I promised them I would never, ever wear their skins again. <clears throat> and <clears throat> I didn't really know the word, but I found that I had become a vegan. <laughs> now, here I was suddenly having to eat a plant-based diet, and it was delicious. And every and, and there were some wonderful books available. Francis Moore LePay had written Diet for a Small Planet. And I realized there was a whole wonderful world of plant-based cuisine out there. And I started to eat a plant-based diet. And wonderful things started happening to my body. My, a, a 10 kilogram apron of fat around my waist melted away. My blood pressure had been 150-90, dropped down to 110-70. My cholesterol dropped 20 points. And I felt great waking up in a lean, light body every day. Something to this. I've, I felt like a truly healthy man, inside and out. But that started changing my view of medicine, what I was doing in it. Here I was, learning to be an anesthesiologist, literally spending my days putting people to sleep. 
And I knew in my heart what I really wanted to do was help him wake up. <laughs> so I had six months to go in my residency in anesthesia. I had paid my money for my American board exams, and I knew I could not do this any longer. And I went to the head of the Department of Anesthesia at Vancouver General and said, I'm going back to general practice. And indeed, I did. And I went back now with knowledge I didn't have before. I began drawing patients who were vegans. And they were asking me, is it a safe and reasonable thing to do? And this is, was 1981. And there wasn't a lot of, of backing for this. But I knew that the biggest, strongest animals on the planet, elephants, buffalo, giraffes, gorillas, grow to thousands of pounds of mammalian muscle without ever eating cheeseburgers. <laughs> the nutrients have to be in the plant foods, clearly. And even back in 1980s, there were vegetarian athletes, Bill Pearl and Andres Colling, these magnificent bodybuilders, and Dave Scott, this triathlete, uh, was, were doing these magnificent athletic performances on plant foods. So I knew it, there, the science had to be there. So I started looking through the medical literature. Sure enough, it was there. Seek and you shall find. Found a study by Dr. Frey Ellis in, uh, in the UK. Uh, who noted that uh, vegans um, were lean, healthy people, and when people adopted a vegan diet, their arteries cleared out, their blood pressure dropped down. Uh, Frank Sachs at, um, at Harvard uh, noticed that uh, the vegetarians' practice had lower cholesterol levels. Uh, he also noted that their, uh, uh, that their blood pressures started falling to normal. And I said, aha, I'm onto something here. This is not a crazy fringe thing to do. This is real medicine. This is making people truly healthy. And uh, there's a lovely study out of Sweden by Andres Lindahl, um, who took 35 practicing asthmatic patients. And these were actual, honest to goodness, asthmatic. They were on albuterol, taking prednisone. They were wheezing. Put them on a vegan diet. Got that dairy protein out of their diet. And within one year, there was a significant decrease in asthma symptoms. And uh, within one year, 71% reported improvement in four months, and 92% of them in a year were feeling much better, most of them off their medications. Uh, uh, Jens Kelsenkrog in Norway took patients with rheumatoid arthritis, red hot inflamed rheumatoid arthritis. Did a, took them to a health farm, uh, put them on a seven-day water fast, and fed them a plant-based diet. Re the results were startling. Uh, everything about them. Uh, the number of tender joints went down. The swelling went down. The stiffness went down. The grip strength got better. The signs of inflammation, their sed rates, their C-reactive protein, everything started getting better. And by the way, uh, there was a lovely vegan man in, in Sydney named Clint Pattison, P-A-D-D-I-S-O-N, uh, who cured himself of rheumatoid arthritis. I highly encourage you to see his TED talk. Um, and you will see him with joints so painful it hurts to look at the video he's showing. And he goes on a whole food plant-based diet and by the end of his TED talk he shows you films where he is running the power of a whole food plant-based diet. 
I started finding other plant-based physicians, ran into Dr. John McDougall, uh, uh, who's been a friend and a mentor of mine. Uh, you can see neither he and I have changed a bit in, in the years that have, uh, that have followed. Uh, but he wrote two excellent books, The McDougall Plan and McDougall's Medicine, and uh, I highly recommend them to you. They are as valid today as they were in the 80s that showed me that, yes, this can be used in clinical medical practice. So in my medical practice, I began seeing the patients that I used to hate see coming through the door when I first got into general practice. My, like my patient, Ken, 50, 50 pounds overweight, high blood pressure, diabetes, high cholesterol, on medications, on statins, and hypertensive medications. I never knew what to tell them. Oh, you really should lose some weight, Ken. And, uh, and I fiddled with their insulin dosage, and I, I felt like a complete fraud. Now, I knew what to tell them go on a whole food, plant-based, vegan diet. And within 12 weeks, Ken went from the fella on your left to the fella on your right. Even today, I, I'm, I'm slack-jawed, gobsmacked as I watch our, my nation's National Institute of Health. The NIH spends billions of dollars every year looking for the cause of type 2 diabetes, the cause of hypertension, the cause of childhood obesity, the cause of inflammatory bowel disease. Makes me want to get the biggest soapbox I can find, go down to Washington, D.C., stand on it and yell as loudly as I can, it's the food! <laughs> it's what they're eating! <laughs> but you know that. And I know that. And there are starting to be plant-based physicians sprouting up everywhere. We have some lovely ones in our midst today, Dr. Malcolm Mackay, uh, who I'll tell you about later. And, and there I, we will both be attending the fourth international conference on plant-based nutrition and healthcare. What a promising, powerful sign that is. Now, back in the 1980s, when I was working on an Indian reservation in Northern California, <laughs> I got my pilot's license. I'm a pilot. I fly airplanes. And from 10,000 feet, I could see all is not well with our planet. I saw the mountains scalped of their trees. I saw the topsoil flowing into the rivers with every rainstorm and the rivers running brown with topsoil. I saw rivers running dry in cattle country and in dairy country. As I read the environmental literature, I, I heard about the rainforest being totally decimated. I heard about the creeping deserts that were engulfing thousands of square miles on our planet every year. I saw with dismay as the animals that I love would die, as the ecosystems they depend upon were decimated. And then those dreadful statistics of the dying children, the gross malnutrition that plagues this planet. My heart became heavy with all the suffering for the people, the animals, and the planet itself. I became interested in animal rights and began attending animal rights conferences, and at one of them I ran into author Cleveland Amory. 
Remember, Medclevin Amory is one of the great characters of the 20th century and wrote some passionate books about animals, and uh, here's his uh, cat, Snowball. And in one moment, he looked at me after I had given a talk, and in his inevitable Cleveland Amory voice, said, boy, there's a book you ought to read. And he handed me Diet for a New America by John Robbins. John Robbins was the heir to the Baskin Robbins ice cream fortune who walked away from it because uh, it was not integrity. It was not an integrity to see the destruction and suffering in the world and spend his time inventing a 30-second flavor. So he walked away from that fortune and wrote this book, and I highly recommend it to you. In the first chapter, he talks about the animals and how magnificent they are and how benevolent they are and how intelligent they are. They have from, from prescient parrots to, to altruistic uh, dolphins. They really brought your, your heart uh, joy to read these stories. But then he said, mm, we're not so nice to the animals. And he laid out the realities of modern factory farming. In the second part of the book, he talked about the health aspects of eating an animal-based diet and what it does to arteries and creating disease states throughout the body. And for a non-physician, I was impressed And John Robbins' acuity in laying out the health ramifications of an animal-based diet. But it was the third section of his book about what our voracious appetite for animal flesh is doing to this planet that that tore at my heart. It oh, got it. Made the connection. And now I knew why I would never eat animal flesh again. This book so moved me that I began seeing the connections everywhere. And it made very clear that large-scale industrial animal agriculture the production of animal flesh is the driving force for every single environmental disaster that we face these days. Deforestation, soil erosion, water depletion, water pollution, pesticide and herbicide use, and as Philip so powerfully said, greenhouse gases that, uh, that threaten all our existence. Here is the mechanism that is driving the destruction that we face these days. She thinks she's eating a a big burger. But you and Philip and I all know what she's really eating is our future. This moved me so much that after I read this book in two days, I devoured the book, picked up the phone, called John Robbins. And I said, sir, you've written a powerful book. Sounds like you'd use some help, could you? He said, I sure could. So I left my medical practice in Florida and I moved to Santa Cruz, California to help John in his work. And together we found an organization called EarthSave. And it was our duty to get this message out. This was our friendly actor, River Phoenix, uh, between us. And we tried to get the word out that for the taste of flesh in the mouth, and that's all that it is, it's not for human nutrition, for the taste of flesh, the forests are being destroyed. For the taste of flesh, the topsoils are running into the rivers with every rainstorm. For the taste of flesh, animal manure of staggering proportions of polluting our waterways with every rainstorm. 
For the taste of flesh, potent herbicides and pesticides are sprayed on fields, the vast majority of which are corn and soybean fields destined to go down the gullets of animals to fatten them for slaughter for cheap cheeseburgers. But it's not cheap at all. It's been estimated that if the meat producers really had to pay for not only the water and the, not, and the, the grains weren't subsidized, and they had to pay for the cleanup of the environmental disaster they create, uh, these burgers would cost $100 a pound, as they well should. And the pesticides, of course, don't just kill bull weevils. They're killing the very insects that produce our food. We're facing a world without bees. Every rainstorm washes these herbicides and pesticides into the rivers that then carry them down along with the topsoil. Every rainstorm. The topsoils, the polluted pesticide and herbicide-laden topsoils, the Jew, the velvet life-giving carpet from the American Midwest, from Minnesota, Iowa, Wisconsin, Illinois, pour into the Mississippi River. If you are standing in New Orleans, prime American topsoil is washing past you at the rate of a dump truck load a second. And it is piling up in the Gulf of Mexico and the fertilizers produce algae blooms that when they die suck up all the oxygen in the water. There is a dead zone the size of the state of Delaware growing, all for the taste of flesh. And of course the animals die for the sake of the flesh. We are strip mining the oceans. We are clear cutting the oceans. And as Philip said, uh, it, it buggers the imagination to think of the trillions of animals that are slaughtered for, for what? For, for pellets to feed, feed to animals. We're, we're, our children are going to have an ocean filled with jellyfish alone. Let's have a quick break with a song and then we'll continue with Dr. Klaper. Hi, my name's Sarah. I love coming here because they offer vegan food. Hi, my name's Paul. I've, this is my first time at Friends of the Earth. I think it's really awesome and the food's great, and really healthy and nutritious. La, 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 Friends of the Earth Food Co-op, 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. A tuneful experience. A 3CR supporter. This is Freedom of Species on 3CR Community Radio, 855am. That was a track by Rover called All I Can Do Is Resist. Now let's go back to the presentation from Dr. Michael Klepper. And of course the world is getting hotter. <clears throat> and with all that that represents, and as he said, the glaciers and the ice cap are melting. These bears are on these melting icebergs for their taste, for our lust of the taste of animal flesh. That's all that's put them on those icebergs. There's soon going to be nine billion of us. <clears throat> their world is getting hotter. Every burger eaten makes their world deader, more barren, and hotter. If you want to learn more about this, I commend you to read the uh, United Nations report, Livestock's Long Shadow, uh, where they said that uh, uh, the uh, livestock uh, in this report is responsible for 18% of greenhouse gases. That alone is more than transportation provides. But now, 
uh, they've upgraded that to at least 51% of the greenhouse gases attributable to animal agriculture. Now the cynics and the skeptics say, oh, come on, don't tell me that, 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 that the, the farting cows put out more greenhouse gases than all the cars and trucks that are on the highways of all these industrialized nations. Well, they may say that. They say, that's, that's the real problem. We need electric cars. But you can see the bankruptcy of that rationale, and you can expose it with one question. What's in the trucks? The entire agriculture industry is in those trucks. <clears throat> They're full of fertilizers and seed. They're full of fuel for, for the tractors and the irrigation pumps and the trucks and the refrigeration units. They're full of cattle feed and full of cattle themselves. They, they're hauling the meat. The entire restaurant industry is in those trucks. The fast food industries are in those trucks. People are in those cars driving to restaurants to eat animal flesh. Animal flesh production and consumption has its tentacles into everything that is driving destruction on this planet. Do not be seduced by this false dichotomy between transportation and the production of animal flesh. Think of all the animal, think of all the fossil fuels being burned right now to produce animal flesh. All the, all the gasoline and diesel fuel dry being burned by trucks and irrigation pumps. Think of all the refrigerators and freezers in this country and around the world that are keeping meat cold and in people's houses to keep meat frozen and cold. And the methane gas that's released um, is, is even far worse than the carbon dioxide, many, many times more potent in its heat-trapping effect. John and I worked together for many years. We still work together. My friendship over the last 25 years has, uh, with John Robbins has persisted. Uh, he is one of my nearest, dearest friends these days. Neither of us has changed a bit, of course over the years, but unfortunately our message has not been heeded. And you can see this is animal product consumption around the world. The top blue line is industrialized nations, but the red line below it, uh, don't advance the slide please, is um, these are transition nations. Uh, here's Latin America, here's East Asian, and you can see the upward slope of these lines. Industrial scale animal agriculture is non-sustainable. We cannot keep going as we are. Well, what about this guy? I face him most days in some form or another, and I'm sure you do too. Oh, I tried to be vegan once, didn't work. I felt all weak and tired, and, and then I ate some meat once. Oh, I felt great. I'm a paleo guy, right? Any of you run into some, this guy? Hmm? Oh, I lost weight on a paleo diet. That's why I'm, I'm a meat, meat, meat and veggie guy. Hmm? Well, we got to deal with this guy. This is serious business. He's one of the major obstacles that we've got to surmount here. So let me give you some insights. Because he's telling the truth in his experience. I figure either everybody got together, all these guys, and says, let's drive Dr. Clapper nuts. Let's all say that we tried to be a vegan and it didn't work. Or else, they really had that experience. Why is this happening? What are we looking at? From the physician's point of view, 
I say, first of all, let's take a step back. Let's get flesh eating into some perspective here. Most Australians and Americans eat a piece of animal flesh three times a day. Bacon and eggs for breakfast, cheeseburger for lunch, chicken for dinner. Every five hours, a piece of animal muscle is going down the gullet of some homo sapien on this, uh, in the industrialized world. Good heavens, people. <clears throat> Not even mountain lions eat animal flesh three times a day. The tigers in the rainforest, official carnivores, don't eat flesh three times a day. We didn't used to either. Back in the 50s, I was growing up, you had pot roast on, on my uncle's farm, you had pot roast on Sunday, fish on Friday, that was it, we ate out of the garden. We had cabbage stews and, and potato soups. Uh, we, didn't, we weren't eating flesh every day, that's for darn sure. But we got rich after World War II and the government subsidized uh, flesh production and now it's cheap $2 burgers. No primate eats animal flesh at all let alone three times a day, for the paleo folks to say, well, that's what, that's what, that's what our, our natural folks, we are, like, every, like every caveman had a mastodon in the freezer and spent all day eating mammoth meat. Oh, I'm a caveman, I eat meat, mammoth meat, that's what I do, you know? <laughs> we are not carnivorous apes, which is what the paleo philosophy is trying to tell us we are. Now, when they say, well, I lost weight on the paleo diet, they're right, they did. Because of what the paleo diet forbids. And there's a few things I agree with in our philosophy. They say, don't advance the slide. They say no caveman ever milked a dairy cow, and they're down on dairy products. Yay, paleo, they're right. We agree. No paleo guy ever squeezed the fat out of olives and poured it on his, his veggies there, so they're down on oils. Yay, they're right. And no caveman ever ground up weed into flour to make donuts and cupcakes and they're down a flower pot. I agree, yay. <clears throat> but the whole concept is a myth. If you take the time to go to Africa like anthropologist Nathaniel Dominey from Dartmouth did and go examine the skulls of the Cro-Magnon people and the Neanderthals, you see in between their teeth were starch grains. And the reality is that most of the calories brought into the ancient paleo camps were gathered by the women. They're pulling up roots and tubers and gathering nuts and berries and edible grasses. Once again, the women got us through those tough times. And the truth is, we're starchivores. Meat, if you found it, rotted quickly. The thought that they were eating it three times a day is a complete travesty of the truth. And for my friends who are ensnared by this philosophy and my patients, uh, as a physician, I have great concerns because they know not what they do. We are not carnivorous apes. If someone asks me, I want to cause a, a stomach cancer and a colon cancer, how do I do that? It's simple. Pack your stomach and your colon full of meat three times a day. Let that rub on your stomach ball and your colon lining for 20 years. Watch what you set off in there. The connection between animal flesh consumption and colon and gastric cancers are well known, and because there's so little flesh in the diet, I'm sorry, so little fiber in the diet, there's a chronic constipation, the stool mass is full of carcinogens from the cooking, and the bacterial degradation of the meat proteins has a long time, don't advance the slide, 
to, to rub against the cold wall by the time it gets here. You, the, the food that, uh, uh, that the person ate on Thursday, you know, even though it's Saturday, it's, it's slowly moving through here. You've got a long time to rub these carcinogens on the colon wall. And it's no accident, no coincidence, that most of the cancers in colon uh, occur on the, um, on the descending and sigmoid colon. But there's more. The food you eat determines the bacteria that live in your gut. You eat a bunch of sugar, you're going to summon up sugar-eating bacteria. Well, you drop a piece of animal flesh down your gut two, three times a day, you're going to summon up bacteria in your intestines that eat carnitine, which is a major constituent of animal muscle. And you'll summon up a population of Clostridia, Peptostreptococci bacteria, and these guys don't care about you. They love to see that next chicken breast come down. They love to see that next piece of steak or chicken come down. Because they will take this carnitine, don't advance life, they'll take that, turn, that carnitine and turn it into stuff called trimethylamine, which then your liver turns into trimethylamine oxide. This is a molecule from hell. This drives cholesterol into the artery walls. And these paleo folks in the gym looking so rough and tough and lean, saying, my, oh, my cholesterol went down. I asked them, where did it go? <laughs> went into your artery walls. These are the guys who dropped dead on the treadmill at age, at age 39, 40. And it turns out that if you give a vegan a piece of steak, guess what? They don't make trimethylamine because they haven't summoned up those carnitine-eating bacteria down there. What a validation of a vegan diet. There's more. Animal flesh from the slaughterhouse, where it all comes from, is redolent with bacteria. They open up the guts of the animals, it spills all the bacteria over everywhere. The bacteria in the meat and on the meat as these bacteria die, they break up and their cell, warms, cell walls form stuff called endotoxin. Ooh, endotoxin is nasty stuff. This causes inflammation throughout the body and it makes your gut leaky. It injures the gut lining and so animal proteins start leaking out into the bloodstream and now you've got the protein of another animal floating through your tissues and you make antibodies against it that look for joint tissue and muscle tissue to lock onto and they find it in your own tissues and it sets off autoimmune diseases from inflammatory arthritis to lupus and, and a whole variety of autoimmune diseases. <clears throat> Animal flesh alone has a nasty sialic acid called NU5GC. This stuff is so inflammatory. It sets off inflammation throughout the body. Only animal flesh has this. And you find this stuff in the, in the plaques of coronary arteries. You find it in the red-hot uh, synovial membranes and rheumatoid arthritis and various tissues involved in autoimmune diseases. Only from animal flesh. And these young fit appearing folks saying, I'm a paleo guy, I'm a paleo guy. I grieve and I fear for them because the truth is they are setting themselves up for a plague of clogged arteries, colon cancers, heart attacks, strokes, the saturated fats, clogged their insulin receptors setting up for diabetes, sets off inflammatory bowel diseases, and a host of autoimmune diseases. This is a diet of death. Kills the animals, of course kills the people who eat it, and it's going to kill this planet. Because what an outrageous 
arrogant, elitist philosophy. Oh, paleo diet's the best diet for everybody. We all ought to be eating paleo. What are they talking about? Animal flesh meals three times a day for nine billion people? What are they talking about? How outrageous that they would propose this. How selfish, how short-sighted. It's their world, it's the, every burger takes, takes a life out of these children's futures. And I know some of you have kids here, I've got little nieces and nephews and I fear for their futures. Again, the biggest, strongest animals on the planet do not eat animal flesh. And you should be confident when your relatives and your friends say, oh, you're vegan, you can't be healthy, you can't be strong, and just eating plants, you need to eat animal flesh. I can attest, you do not have to eat a bull to be as strong as one. All the magnificent muscle on this creature was, was you know, composed from completely plant-based materials. And if this is not convincing, then I invite you and to you to bring your skeptical friends to sit down at the computer and punch in three terms uh, in your search engine. Vegan bodybuilders. See who populates your screen. That was part of a talk by Dr. Michael Claper at Melbourne's Astor Theatre earlier this year, an event hosted by Animal Liberation Victoria. I ended the talk there because at this point, Dr. Claper launches into some lengthy and detailed physiological explanations, and unfortunately we just don't have the time necessary to hear that out. But I am going to post the entire presentation on our Freedom of Species website in the Talks tab, so you can listen to it at your leisure. The new documentary, Unlocking the Cage, is going to be screened in Melbourne CBD on Tuesday, October the 25th at 6pm. Tickets include the movie, dinner, music and chocolate. There's a trivia night, a fundraising trivia night for Homeless Hounds Animal Rescue that's being held at Box Hill Town Hall on Friday, October the 28th at 7pm. Maniki Nico Cat Rescue is holding a vegan barbecue and bake sale at Bunnings Collingwood on Saturday, October the 29th at 9am. And that same day, Saturday, October the 29th at 11am, there is a protest at Derby Day at the Flemington Racecourse that's hosted by the Coalition for the Protection of Racehorses. James Aspie is hosting a 24-hour tattoo challenge where you can get a tattoo for some very good causes that's being held on October the 29th and October the 30th in Croydon, Melbourne. And the Sea Shepherd Marine Debris Campaign are holding two beach cleanups in Coffs Harbour and Noosa. That's on October the 20 sorry, on October the 30th. The details of all those events are on their respective Facebook pages and they will eventually also make it onto our Freedom of Species Facebook page. Yarra Art Spaces is a free event hosted by the University of the Third Age Yarra City in partnership with Yarra City Libraries. Ever wondered how arts precincts foster a lively arts community? Or what the role of innovative curators is? Come along to hear discussions on these ideas and more with local curators Marielle Sonny, Anne Virgo, Susan Gibson, Ness Alexander and Marcus Westbury. It's the day after local council elections, 
what better way to spend your Sunday afternoon than in the cosy Fitzroy Town Hall reading room contemplating Yarra Art Spaces. Sunday the 23rd of October, 3 to 4.30pm. Doors open at 2.30 for refreshments. Please RSVP by calling 1300 695 427. That's 1300 695 427. Or go to yarracity.vic.gov.au forward slash libraries. The U3A Yarra City is a 3CR supporter. That's it for this week. Big thanks to Dr Michael Claper, to Animal Liberation Victoria and to Rover. You can get in contact with us via info at freedomofspecies.org and you can follow us on Facebook and on Twitter. And I'm leaving you with some songs from Paul Kelly. See you next week. I was crawling in need of inspiration You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.